is hell. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell, your daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far, Alex? Uh, pretty good. I hate to rely on our listening audience for parenting advice, but if there are any Freudians out there, uh, let me know. How much damage will it do to lead a child to believe that Oscar the Grouch eats poop? We're having this discussion about whether or not Oscar the Grouch eats, eats poop. Do you think he does? Uh, I would assume he does. I would assume that anything that goes into any garbage or refuse pile is something that he eats. I mean, that's kind of the whole idea, right? All right, so I'll know who to blame in 10 years if uh, things take a turn for the worse over here. <laughs> hey, that might be a good therapy in 10 years. Today, we live in a smartphone society, one dominated by our phones, which track our each and every movement, word, and at times... If we voluntarily give them away, our most personal, intimate, and private thoughts and information as well. Smartphones have taken over every aspect of our lives, changing us in the society we live in permanently, guiding and setting the parameters of how we communicate and socialize, both digitally and directly face-to-face. Our worldview has been shaped by smartphones, and they dictate our daily lives. Sure, they're a great convenience that can help maintain ongoing relationships and sustain older ones. They can even help us organize to challenge things like the surveillance that smartphones impose upon us. But unless we start reconsidering our relationship with smartphones and now, they'll be controlling our future far more than they already control our present. Yes, folks, it's time we democratize smartphones, and in a few we'll have someone on to explain all the technologies real shortfalls and potential benefits when we have the return of editor-at-large at Jacobin Magazine, Nicole Ashoff, author of the new book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. This is Nicole's eighth appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to March 2015, when we spoke with her about her then-just-published book, The New Profits of Capital, which examines the pervasive feeling that capitalism is leading us in the wrong direction and argues that it's time for ideas that challenge the core assumptions of our for-profit system. Nicole was on on most recently, back in December, when we talked about another Jacobin article she was writing against self driving cars. Instead of spending billions developing driverless cars, we should be building sustainable, people centered transportation. You can hear all our interviews with Nicole at thisishell.com when you search on Ashoff. That's A S C H O F F. Find out more about Nicole at nicoleashoff.com. Follow Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Ashoff. Full, dis- full disclosure, <clears throat> full disclosure, I myself, Chuck Mertz, do not repeat, do not own a cell or smartphone, and I never have owned one. Past producer on our show said that me not having a cell phone makes sense as they are mobile phones, and as the producer pointed out, I am really not that mobile. Now, that was when I worked all week out of my home, rarely going outdoors. This was before I moved my office to above a bar and prior to us having these here studios, all because of our ama- your amazing support for This Is Hell by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell and through purchasing merchandise and donating at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Despite moving my work out of my home, I'm still not very mobile. I'm in one of three places at all times, my office, my home, or the bar downstairs, and anyone who wants to get in touch with me can call me at any of those places. 
on very immobile phone numbers. Or people can email me or contact me via friggin' Facebook and our mailing addresses at our website. So if you want to write me a letter or drop me a postcard, go nuts. I do not need a cell phone as the only time I'm not at any of those places. I am walking the one block between them, and you can leave me a message during those four minutes I'm outside away from a phone. Of course, I would have a smartphone if I was more mobile and needed to be mobile, like let's say I was a drug dealer. Then it would make sense for me to have it sell, but I do not deal drugs anymore. I mean, I don't deal drugs, and I and until I start slinging bags again, I mean, if I ever had to go into that line of business, sure, I'd probably get a sell. But until then, if you need to contact me, you'll have to settle for email, Facebook, Twitter, leaving a message at my office or my home or calling the bar or writing me a letter or sending a telegraph or a semaphore, maybe a series of colored flares. So again... I'm broke and not a dealer, which means no, I do not have a cell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what is the single best thing you can do for the world on your smartphone? Or with your smartphone, with your smartphone. It might take a little editing throughout the episode to get this uh, nailed down, but it's what is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What is the single best thing you can do for the world with with your smartphone all righty aren't you glad that we should have run this one by renault <laughs> <laughs> uh okay so that makes this week's question from hell what is the single best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone what is the single best thing you can do with your phone for your smart or for your <laughs> What is the single best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins Nicole's book we are featuring on today's show, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question from hell is, what is the single best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What is the single best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? This is not the media. This is hell. And we got an email from Scott at Chuck at this is hell.com this week. Scott writes, hi, Chuck. In response to your challenge, you're listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. If there was a God, he, she, it is a giant dick and would not have the taste to listen to This Is Hell. This Is Hell would be in direct contrast to the perspective of a mythical being with such horrifying tendencies and motives. So I really don't think This Is Hell is God's favorite radio show. I think Scott's arguing This Is Hell is too good for God? Scott continues, God probably likes NPR and knows so many other things. He, she, it is highly well-adjusted, but well-adjusted, but not this is hell. Sorry, Chuck. But seriously, thanks so much for all you do. Scott, thank you, Scott, but I have to quibble with your uh, thinking that God likes NPR. Nobody really likes NPR, but all other news radio is just so bad, either hopelessly focused on local news with weather and traffic on the 8s, that if you really want real news, especially national or international news, you find yourself stuck on NPR with no other options. God probably is serious and listens to uh, something better. 
but holy crap, is the news lineup bad on Sirius? I haven't noticed for a while. I haven't looked into their Sirius news lineup, but man, it's awful. Didn't they used to have BBC or CBC or something? Because honestly, those two outlets are way better than NPR. Who knows? Given the limited options for news on the radio, maybe God does listen to NPR. And I bet God hates wait, wait, don't tell me as much as I do. You may remember last week we read Wrangler Steve's email from Billionairesburgville, as he called it, Bentonville, Arkansas, the home of Walmart. Steve writes to us again with the subject line, Mysteries of the Walmart Museum Exposed. Yo, Chuck and Alex. In the year 1974, this sleepy, hill-bound hamlet of Bentonville, Arkansas, closely resembled the corn-pone television town of Mayberry RFD. The local flavor of Bentonville culture included a traditional cow patty tossing contest, and more importantly, the renowned annual Jumping of the Mules held in nearby Pea Ridge, Arkansas. Now, what I was thinking of was stuff from, like, the culture on Canassus where they would run at these huge bulls and then they would grab the horns of the bulls and then flip over them so people would be jumping over these bulls. Now, so I had to look up these videos and I saw some online. It looks like you walk your mule up to a rig of two posts and some sort of heavy fabric hanging from them. A person then walks a mule up to that faux wall. They stand there for a moment and suddenly the mule just jumps over. There's no running up to it and leaping over, only a slow walk, a jump that's almost a hop, and it's over. One mule jumped four feet seven inches, and I have no idea if I'm supposed to be impressed by that height or not. I have no idea what that means. Wrangler Steve continues, Bentonville citizens had names just every bit as interesting as Gomer and Goober on Mayberry RFD. In 1974, the small town had showed signs of the changes which would transform it into the capital city of global hyper-capitalism. The most celebrated African-American in town was a genial shoeshine man named Rabbit Dickerson. Each year, the Chamber of Commerce awards one community servant leader by presenting the lovely Rabbit Dickerson plaque to the lucky individual selected. Visit the online Walmart Museum of Corporate Propaganda or travel into the Ozark foothills and see for yourself the fulfillment of Faulkner's famous dictum from the novel Requiem for a Nun. The past is never dead. It is not even past. But isn't the expression not even past the very definition of fascism found in Timothy Snyder's brilliant book, The Road to Unfreedom, which you featured on This Is Hell? The gray, stony statue of Bentonville's own Confederate officer, James Henderson Berry, scans the horizon from his monument in the center of the city square, vigilant to any and every sign of change. Thank you, Chuck and Alex, for delivering me from this hell all living things must endure and resist unless, in my case, armies of the living dead, soldiers in gray, do not first firebomb my humble home, which lies behind the come-and-go convenience store, K-U-M, come-and-go convenience store in that part of Billionairesvilleburg known as the New Briar Patch. Again, Steve, thanks for the local flavor, and if you want to send us reports about what hell is happening wherever you are, send an email to us at chuckatthisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Coming up, we live in a smartphone society, voluntarily giving up our entire lives to our phones and letting them guide our lives every moment. 
of every day. So what does that mean for us as a society? Alex will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what is the single best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? What is the single best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins Nicole Ashoff's book, which we are about to discuss, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell for the vast majority of us who have smartphones. Those hand machines are controlling our lives unlike any breakthrough technology that society has ever encountered in the past. Sure, there's comparisons with the advent of the automobile, and we'll make those this morning, but no other innovation has been so ubiquitous, touching on every aspect of our daily lives. Here to tell us all about our smartphone society. Editor-at-large at at Jacobin Magazine, Nicole Ashoff, is author of the new book, The Smartphone Society. You can find out more about Nicole at NicoleAshoff.com, and you can follow Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Ashoff. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Nicole. Hi, Chuck. How's it going? Very well. It's going very well. This is Nicole's eighth appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to March 2015. We spoke with her about her then-just-published book, The New Profits of Capital, which is an amazing book. And you can find it, again, by going to NicoleAshoff.com. You write most people have lost their phone at some point or have feared they had and have experienced that moment of sweaty, heart-pounding dread. But Calloway's story, the person who uh, you mentioned has lost their phone, is illuminating at the the time. It neatly captures our surprise and unease at how attached we've become to pocket computers. We simply can't imagine life without them. That heart-pounding dread. As we discussed last week with sociologist Rob Larson, author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, the goal of these technologies is to inculcate a sense of dependence on those technologies. Why do we easily accept anything that we depend upon so much that we believe we need or our daily lives are completely turned upside down? We already were dependent on our computers and laptops and platforms like social media, which when down can completely change our lives. We already knew that heart-pounding dread of being too dependent on a technology, hell, going back to our dependence on personal transportation. Why do we so quickly accept technology that insists the user becomes completely dependent upon it? Well, I think the most basic reason is that our phones are really useful. They provide a point of connection and information and entertainment that pretty unprecedented, I think. I mean, you can, you know, I can pick up the phone and see my mom who lives across the country in a moment, which, you know, when I was a child, we used to watch the Jetsons and think about this glorious future. It never seemed possible, but now it's like totally a reality. I mean, this, you know, I can instantly find out how to get somewhere or instantly find out what's happening in the news. I mean, it's just, it's, our phones are so amazing at providing what we want and giving us answers to the questions that we have, that we develop this kind of very intimate relationship with them. And you mentioned uh, automobiles in your book about the advent of automobiles recently where we were talking about the robber barons and the advent of railroads here in the United States. You write, despite momentous technological advances, the present moment is fraught with contradictions. Observers liken it to the late 19th century gilded age, a time of robber barons, staggering inequality and seismic technological and social shifts. Does the introduction of technology that significantly impacts our daily lives necessarily lead to rising inequality and centralization of wealth, including oligopolies, if not monopolization? 
It doesn't necessarily, but you have to, when one of the main kind of um, points that I really try to drive home in the book is that if we're going to understand smartphones, we can't succumb to a kind of easy technological determinism where we use the phone as our, or the car or the railroad as a sort of, you know, explanatory variable that's going to explain, you know, everything that's happening in society. But instead to say, all right, actually the ways that we use our phones or our cars or our railroads actually reflect broader shifts in our society. And so we think about, well, what are these kind of bigger structures? Well, one of the things that shapes our society is the fact that it's a capitalist society and the profit motive is a driving force, right? So if we think about how are we using our phones and who, how are they designed and how are they, you know, um, being shaped by these giant corporations who many of these corporations now really are being compared to the, the robber barons and the, the big monopolies of the Gilded Age. I think in some ways the reasons why we're making these comparisons is because we're really more and more every day recognizing the kind of power imbalance between us as users and, you know, the kind of uh, designers and controllers of this architecture. What explains to you that the attraction to that technological determinism to think that it is the phone or it is the video game that makes us bad? What is the attraction to that? And what do we miss in our understanding of technology when we blame the video game or we blame the smartphone? Well, I think part of the, the reason is that many people are aware that, okay, all of a sudden I have this device. I carry it with me absolutely everywhere, maybe even to the bathroom. I never leave the house without it. And, you know, at the same time, I'm seeing all of these other problems around us that people are talking about. So whether it's teens uh, and increasing anxiety, or it's, you know, people's lack of faith in, in political parties. So it's very natural to say, well, all of a sudden we're using these phones, we're connected to, to them all the time. There must be an obvious kind of causal relationship between this new technology and these kind of bigger problems I see either in society or also in my own life. So I think it's very natural to make that leap. And we have throughout history, right? If we look at sort of panics about technology for the last 150 years, we see a very similar pattern of people looking at a new technology and, and really kind of um, panicking and saying, okay, this is the cause of all of these problems. But by the same token, we shouldn't just say, well, no, phones are totally fine. Whatever we're doing with them is totally fine. I think we have to take very seriously our fears about smartphones, which I really emphasize in this book, but to really unpack those fears and to see our phones as reflecting the shape of our society, right? To say, what, what is it that I'm afraid of? And many of these fears are very legitimate. One of them, for example, is the sense that everything that I'm doing with my phone is creating this sort of, you know, constant flow of data that's being scooped up by these companies and used to track, uh, to track me and sell me things and is being, you know, my data is being sold to all of these other advertisers. That's a legitimate fear. I think my real emphasis is to say, let's put our fears in the right context and use the right tools to understand these smartphones. But I do want to try to figure out the impact that smartphones may have on us. New, uh, new technologies from the 
phone to the car to the computer to the internet to the smartphone have all had an impact on our social and even sexual relations. You talk about uh, the concern, moral panic over sex crimes committed in automobiles when they came about. Uh, But do they have any impact on our values, on the way we judge actions, people, things, situations, values like beauty, honesty, justice, peace, generosity? Do smartphones have an impact on our values? I think they absolutely can. You know, if you're someone who is using Instagram and you are on Instagram for several hours every day and you're looking at all of these beautiful people and these influencers who are, you know, posting uh, amazing photos about their life, it can make you feel inadequate, right? And it can make you begin to judge your own sense of beauty and self against the image uh, that's being presented to you as reality, right? So part of, um, you know, being aware of this impact is also educating ourselves and, and understanding, well, what is actually the dynamic here? What is Instagram? Who are, what, what are these um, things that I'm seeing? That, that I'm seeing? How real are they? You know, is, is there actually a transaction here? These, in, these influencers, for example, maybe are making money. You know, as we become more aware of the kind of relationships that are embodied in our phone, we can actually, you know, take control and start to say, all right, I am going to control uh, the ways that I integrate this device into my ho- into my life. The same way that we don't, you know, we don't watch TV for 15 hours a day, right? We don't allow our children to play video games for 15 hours a day, right? It's, it's partly sort of getting a handle on what is really a very new technology. It's really only in the last decade um, that these devices have become so ubiquitous. So I think now is an important time to actually take stock and to really sort of try to hammer out what our relationship, uh, not only to our phones, but to the companies that control these phones and also, you know, to uh, our governments who are doing very similar things to what these giant tech companies are doing in terms of surveillance um, and, you know, and tracking ordinary people. You write that for the first time, men could commute to other towns to find work with the advent of the automobile, and they were doing just that, creating a migratory laboring population. The severing of the need for proximity to between home and work increased home ownership, road construction, and car-related industries. But it gravely worried city boosters and business owners who saw a migratory problem as less moral, less politically engaged, and less likely to spend money where they lived. To what extent did those concerns prove to be warranted even coming true because I'm worrying how I'm wondering how much of our concerns today many of our worries today about smartphones how much may they come true so using cars using the advent of the automobile as a barometer uh, to what extent did those concerns prove to be warranted even coming true I think that many of the concerns about the automobile actually did come true, many of our fears. The reason why I I start the book with a comparison to the automobile is partly that I've spent so much time studying the auto industry. And so it's very much, and the way that I studied it was similar to the way that I think about smartphones, which is like, all right, how can this, you know, machine actually help us understand society? And I think the automobile is a really illuminating machine in the same way that smartphones are today. And so if we think about um, some of our kind of failures to control the way that uh, the automobile was integrated into society and, to con- and our failure to sort of control this sort of 
uh, ability of big auto companies to completely change the dynamic of transportation in this country, right? We used to have lots of public transportation and companies like General Motors bought up all the railroads and trolleys in, in cities and, and destroyed them so that people would be forced to use cars, right? If we think about how the, the automobile was integrated over time into society, it should really give us pause and say, all right, we actually didn't do a great job of getting a handle on that technology. And so we should actually really at the beginning right now to, to make a much harder push to say, we want you know, society to use smartphones where it is useful and not to allow sort of smartphones and the companies who control them to shape society to their own needs. Car culture is a threat to climate change. Is our smartphone society also a threat to climate change? I think it is, actually. And when we think about, you know, I think partly something about, you know, when you're looking at cars and smog and traffic jams, it's much easier to kind of see the relationship between, you know, this machine and the impacts that it has on the environment. I think with our phones, it's a little bit more challenging because you look, it's a very small device. It's beautiful. You know, it seems sort of, uh, you know, it, it seems like the future. You don't, and it doesn't seem like it's this sort of polluting thing. But when you actually look at the, the value chain, right, of, of smartphones or even the, the internet and communications technology industry even more broadly, you actually see it's an incredibly dirty industry. You know, we're holding a beautiful thing in our hands, but to get to that point, we have, you know, massive amounts of extraction. The, the kind of energy, much of it is, you know, fueled by coal to actually, you know, fuel and run these huge server farms. And not to mention all of the waste that is produced, much of it dumped in poor countries in the global south for all of these electronic devices that we discard, right? We keep them for a couple of years and then they slow down, they don't work anymore and we get rid of it or we throw it in the drawer. So I think part of, part of that and also just our behavior, right? When you use your phone, maybe you don't have a phone check, but when people like mobile shopping now is one of the greatest sources of revenue for companies like Amazon. And it's so easy to just tap an app and say, oh, I'm going to, oh, I want this impulse buy. And it comes to your house the next day, right? It's, it's effortless. And I think in many ways, this relationship that we're developing with our phones really sort of puts uh, an emphasis and kind of ramps up this kind of unthinking consumption. So I think th those are two elements where definitely, I would say our phones have a, a pretty stark environmental impact. You write that if the automobile was the defining commodity of the 20th century, the smartphone is the defining commodity of the 21st. How much control does society have over that change? Is it more imposed upon us or are the changes the result of choices we voluntarily make? Because you add that as the 19th century historian Charles Francis Adams Jr. said of the newly omnipresent railroads, Whatever constantly enters into the daily life soon becomes an unnoticed part of it. Is that because we don't have a say, we don't have a choice, because whatever enters our life is imposed on us by the market and the state? Do new ways of living become normalized so fast because we know there's nothing we can do but adapt? Well, I think adaptation and resignation are certainly the easiest choices, right? That's sort of the impulse. And it's partly because we don't have a tradition 
of challenging big corporations in a very sustained kind of successful way, particularly in the last 30 years. Yes, we've had consumer rights group. Yes, we have labor unions. But for the most part, particularly when it comes to the tech companies, they've had pretty much free reign to develop products and collect data and, you know, and create this kind of architecture that's designed primarily for their own benefit, right? And so I think part of the the challenge now, right, is to not allow our phones to become an unnoticed part of our lives, and which I think is really the case. A lot of people, they take these phones everywhere with them, but they don't give a lot of thought to beyond, okay, I use my phone too much. Beyond that, they don't really, until the last couple of years, I think people haven't given a lot of thought to what are the kind of relationships and institutions embedded in this machine that I carry everywhere with me. So part of pushing back and not, you know, taking control is to recognize sort of what are the relationships that I have in my phone. You write that turning over a new smartphone feels like touching the future. We now carry with us everywhere we go a powerful micro mini computer that uh, connects us to each other and to cyberspace perpetually and powerfully. Nonetheless, it is worth remembering that our smartphones are in many respects a mashup of existing technologies and behaviors packed together in a novel configuration. Why is that worth remembering? What does remembering they are a mashup tell us either about the technology or its impact on us? Well, one of the reasons why I think it's important to remember that is that a lot of the technology that is in our phones is not something that has just been created by a couple of geniuses in Silicon Valley. It's actually technology that has come out of universities, it's taxpayer-funded research, and it's something that's been developed for, for many years. And so in that sense, we have a sort of collective right to say, well, you know what? We helped develop and pay for this technology. This is publicly funded uh, research. We should have a control over you know, how it's being used. And another way of thinking, you know, the reason why it's important to take history seriously is that, you know, we can often get into this trap of thinking what in this moment, this piece of technology is completely unprecedented. In some ways it is, but in some ways it builds on trends that have been happening for 30 years. So it's really useful to try to understand, you know, what's new and, and what is different. And you point out that Time Magazine named the PC Person of the Year in 1982. Hardware, touchscreens, radios, processors, antennas, much of the technology essential to our smartphones predates the advent of the actual smartphone. Steve Jobs' team at Apple figured out how to refine and combine these technologies into one device, creating the iPhone. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were talking to Paul Cockshot, author of How the World Works, the story of human labor from prehistory to the modern day. So it doesn't cover that much time. Paul argues that not much innovation <laughs> is actually emerging today and that most of it is old technology being repurposed, which is very much in opposition with conventional wisdom of how we're making all these technological innovations right now. How do we view the world inaccurately when we believe we are living in a golden age of innovation, when we are actually living in a golden age of repurposing what past generations left behind? How does that change the way we view smartphone technology in the world today? Well, I mean, I think certainly we have to understand, you know, the history of innovation. My main thing that I, that I, I don't want people to get too hung up on the sort of actual tech in the phone. I think I really try to emphasize the relationships that our phones are 
generating. And one of the things that I think is genuinely new right now, which uh, is, is not something that we've seen before, is this um, digital always on connection. That's now we have our phones on and with us 24 hours a day. We are actually receiving and transmitting data about ourselves perpetually now for potentially the rest of our lives for however long we carry this phone around with us. And I think this is something new and it is something that we have to really be serious about examining the implications of. Well, let's talk about how it affects our relationships with each other. You write email created the ethos central to social media, providing new ways of interacting and sustaining relationships, particularly with people who lived far away. Phone calls were often expensive and emotionally consuming. With email, you could effortlessly dash off a line or two, updating friends and family on life's major and minor events. So are we sustaining more relationships for a longer time but maintaining them regularly in a far more shallow way. What happens when the number of friends you have becomes more important than the quality of friendships you share? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's obviously not a good thing. But actually, I think researchers have found um, that most of the people who we text and call are our immediate family members. Uh, You know, the vast majority of interactions that we have on our phone are with our spouse, our partner, our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters, you know, these, it's, it's sort of reinforcing these kind of really strong ties that we have. But at the same time, we're, we're enmeshed in these kind of what really are new networks. And we're, our phones really do facilitate the creation of all of these kind of new weak ties. Now, if all of you, if all that you have in your life are weak ties, uh, you know, whether they be people that you um, see on the internet or follow on Instagram, right? Or you, you follow them on Twitter. Like clearly that's not a, a very rich kind of, uh, and it doesn't fulfill the kind of deep social needs we have as humans. But I think that we shouldn't, shouldn't overestimate our, uh, you know, this kind of transfer from, you know, these strong ties within our, our personal networks to weak ties uh, and as a result of the smartphone. I think a lot of that kind of dynamic is a bit overstated. Well, what does it say about the way we communicate today when we refuse to ignore texts or calls, prioritizing them over the face-to-face conversation, the direct communication you're having with whoever is sitting in front of you at the time? What does that say to you about the way that we communicate when all of a sudden the phone is the priority at all times because it's always on? Yeah, that's super annoying. I think, um, you know, it's funny when you look back at uh, the history of the television, uh, there's some interesting kind of studies where people, you know, will talk about the ways that families use televisions and they would all people, the whole family would sort of come home and they would turn on the TV and they would sit glued to the television until they went to bed. The phone could be ringing off the hook. People could be coming to the door and they're just completely zoned out. I think what we're seeing right now is that we're developing these kinds of social norms around our smartphones for the first time, right? So part of figuring out how to take control of our smartphones is developing new social norms to police the kind of behavior that we're talking about, right? To, to actually create this kind of normative consensus to say, this is not acceptable behavior. If you and I are having a conversation, don't look at your phone. Right. So that's something that I think hopefully is starting to happen. Right. But that's part of figuring out how to, you know, 
control these kinds of technologies rather than allowing them, them to control us in a very sort of impulsive way. And you talk about how in the early days of cell phones, people, you see this on the train all the time here in Chicago, people would be talking really loudly into their phones. And so nobody could talk to anybody else (laughs) on the train. And so those norms have changed. What do you think happens when a society no longer knows how to talk to the person sitting next to them on the train or the bus, but they know how to stay in contact with people who they have moved far away from or those who have left them behind? What happens when we're better at maintaining and sustaining relationships rather than making new ones with those in your physical community. What happens to your community? Well, I mean, this is, this is also another one of those interesting questions because it's always an easy way. It's like, I see everyone on the train and, and they're on their phone and this is a sign of how everyone is completely addicted to their phones. I think we shouldn't overstate that. Before I ever had a phone, I never really struck up a lot of conversations with people on the bus or the train. I think, you know, when we have these shared public spaces, it's not as if before phones, we were all talking to each other and making new friends every day on the way home from work. It's partly that we're bored, we have a long commute, and we want a little bit of entertainment. By the same token, you know, by the same token, we shouldn't allow our phones to sort of dominate our interpersonal relationships to the sense that, like, we're constantly just connected to someone, you know, in this faraway place or this person that we're never even going to see. Obviously, there's a balance, but it's, a, it's also about sort of not immediately panicking and saying, oh, all of our social ties are breaking down because of this, you know, device. You write that as French sociologist Christian Lecope notes, SMS, short message service, allowed users, that's the original texting, allowed users to decontextualize their interactions, encouraging spontaneity and impulsivity. Cell phones created what Lickup calls connected presence. For the first time, we could call people directly, not just the location we hoped they'd be in. What happens when we decontextualize our interactions? What does that mean to decontextualize interactions? Well, what, uh, like Opa was talking about, it's like, imagine, you know, when you used to try to call your friend at home and, uh, like their parent would answer the phone, right. When you're a teenager and then you have to sort of like, uh, interact through this other person. Now we are like, we have these one-to-one personal connections with people wherever they are, whenever, you know, this sort of wherever, whenever connection, which Rich Ling talks about. And, and that in itself is something meaningful. It's something that predates the smartphone, but it's something that has only become even more reinforced, right? And so we think about, well, what are the implications of that? Well, there's potentially a lot of uh, negative implications in the sense that we can never escape our phone, right? We, we, if we don't leave the house without it, we can't actually take a break from this connection, but by the same token, it can give us a sense of, you know, uh, being able to be in touch with people wherever we are, right, and able to kind of cement these social ties. So it's it's give and take, right? It's both there are goods and bads in these kinds of ways that our, you know, networks and interactions are, are being uh, reshaped. You point out that worse critics say that we've allowed our phones to victimize our children. Catherine Price, in a piece for the New York Times, confessed, I recently had a baby and was feeding her in a darkened room. It was an intimate, tender moment, except for one detail. She was gazing at me, and I was on eBay scrolling through listings for Victorian-era doorknobs. How much more can smartphones have an impact on society than even car culture? Because you you could leave your car in the garage or driveway or parked on the street, but your phone is always with you. Is this the most controlling technology 
humanity's ever invented and are we socially and physically prepared for one technology having that much impact on our lives? Well, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's the most controlling technology. I mean, if we think about sort of, um, you know, the industrial revolution and, and our work lives, right, where all of a sudden you have these kind of factories where we're all forced to go to this place for 10 hours a day and work in order to actually, you know, create enough uh, to generate enough money to support ourselves. That's a pretty controlling technology. But I definitely think that if we allow phones uh, and the companies who control these phones to do whatever they want with them, yeah, it does have a potential to be an incredibly uh, controlling technology, particularly because companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon are only ever like every day trying to, uh, strengthen this connection that we have with our phones and thus our connection to them and actually generate more and more data and collect more and more data. So I think that's really why I emphasize in the book that we have to, you know, take a step back and, and really, you know, take a hard look at what the kind of relationships that we have with these phones are. You mentioned that many observers are deeply uneasy about the society we're creating for ourselves. Sherry Turkle, a science and technology professor at MIT, and a leading critic of our smartphone society, believes a new silent spring, an allusion to Rachel Carson's term for the silencing of birdsong due to DDT, is on the horizon. Only this time it isn't DDT that is killing all that is beautiful. It is our smartphones. According to Turkle, we've become so accustomed to being connected that we're terrified of being alone. Any space, any space a second and we're on our phones silently swiping and tapping away in phone world the upshot says Turkle we are quote less empathetic less connected less creative and fulfilled we are diminished in retreat smartphones aside how does neoliberalism contribute to the problems in Turkle's estimation that are caused by smartphones does neoliberalism simply create a fertile environment for a new digitized society or is our society is even our technology in every platform the result of neoliberalism. Did neoliberalism encourage, exacerbate, motivate, incentivize technology that undermined our empathy and connectedness to other humans and give us a less creative and fulfilled life? Or would smartphone technology and our digital digitized life simply not exist without neoliberalism? Well, I think you're hitting on something important there, Chuck, um, which is this, This, you know, when, when we think about, all right, smartphones have really taken hold over the past 10 years, 15 years, right? 2007 was the first phone. 2011 was when, um, you know, the first standalone study of, of Americans found that over a third of Americans had a phone, right? So it's pretty recent. And so when we think about that, we, we can recognize, as you're saying, that the development of this technology happened at sort of the, the peak of neoliberalism, right? And what are the values um, that we often ascribe to neoliberal capitalism? Well, one of them is this real focus on the individual, right? And this idea of, you know, increasing our human capital, um, you know, monitoring ourselves, constantly striving to work harder. And by this, you know, on the flip side, you know, not to point to bigger structural barriers to our lack of success or our increased anxiety or increased alienation, but to instead constantly be looking inward as both, you know, the kind of, um, solution and the cause of, of any problems that we might be having. And so I think a lot of the relationship that we're developing with our smartphones kind of echoes these dynamics. Certainly when we think about, 
you know, people's fears about their phones, the ways that tech companies are responding is to create all of these tools to, you know, for us to each as individuals to police our own usage, right? You can download a phone boss or you can have Google or, you know, the, you know, YouTube send you reminders to take a breather, right? Which are, again is a, in a very neoliberal frame and saying like, okay, I need to focus on self-management rather than saying, all right, what is the bigger landscape that my phone is uh, embodied in, right? And it's not just about the choices I make because the entire society is having these questions about our phones, right? And, and struggling to limit the amount of time we spend on them. So that means it's a much bigger problem. And we have to look outside, which neoliberalism never encourages you to do at these kind of bigger structures and processes. And you argue that amid the storm of criticism of smartphones and digital tech more broadly, it is also helpful to put our fears about smartphone, smartphones into historical context. People have always been anxious about new technology. Sociology as a discipline was founded during the late 19th century by scholars such as Marx, Du Bois, Weber, Adams, and Emily Durkheim, who were puzzling out how society, a new concept in its own right, was adapting to industrialization, machines, and technology. Their predictions were often dire. New inventions... Uh, such as the telephone and telegraph, uh, watchman notes, annihilated space with time, but left many wondering whether, quote, science and technology were advancing faster than the ability of human society to catch up or to cope. But isn't society always playing catch up to technology? Doesn't technology drag society kicking and screaming in whatever direction technology wants to go, whether society wants to go down that path or not? Well, it can, but, it, you know, part of it is we also have the power to say that we don't want to go in that direction. I think really one of the things I emphasize in this book is to not, you know, allow this idea of technology as this kind of natural force that's outside of society, right? To really push back on this kind of technological determinism that says technology is pushing us. Like we have to think about the actors, right, who are really playing here. And it is these this it is a cluster of huge, very profitable, successful tech companies who are using every angle that they have to get what they want and make a profit. And so it's when we have a better sense of all right, it's not just this kind of, you know, naturally evolving technology, but a set of real actors who are who have real desires uh, and, and goals that they're trying to achieve, right, these huge companies, then we can start to say, all right, well, what are the ways that we want to limit this? And we have limited other technologies in the past in, in very real and meaningful ways. So I think we should keep that in mind as we're thinking about, all right, well, what kind of a, you know, smartphone society do we want to have? What kind of a relationship do we want to have? And we have to start demanding, you know, the, the changes that we want, which I think is starting to happen. And you mentioned how philosopher Walter Benjamin, he lamented how in the hustle and bustle of modern life, we no longer let ourselves be bored or slip into a deep state of relaxation necessary for creativity. You then cite Benjamin writing, boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. A rustling in the leaves drives him away. His nesting places are already extinct in cities and are declining in the country as well. With this, the gift for listening is lost and the community of listeners disappears. What do you think happens to a society? What happens to a person when all of our boredom has been eliminated? The ability to be bored, to have the time to be bored, is simply gone. What happens then? 
Well, you know, Chuck, it's, that's actually something that I think about a lot. And it's one of the reasons why I personally am pr- I'm pretty cautious about how I use my phone. Often I leave my phone at home and I don't just sort of like if I'm sitting on the train or the bus, I don't just reflexively take out uh, my phone. I don't look at my phone while I'm walking around because I do actually really enjoy daydreaming. I love people watching. I love sort of thinking through problems. And it's something that I'm, you know, I have, I have a very kind of um, aware relationship with my phone. And I think this is something that many people that I talk to are starting to develop, right? And they're also starting to think about. I think people are aware of the need for boredom, particularly, you know, the ways that people talk about their children and screen time and the need for creativity and play. Like, these are all important things. We're developing new norms about how we should be introducing our kids to technology. And, you know, I have two daughters. This is something that we think about all the time. My older daughter is turning 12 in a few months. She doesn't have a smartphone. Um, And we, you know, we think about it all the time. And I try to model good phone behavior. So this is is a question that we're grappling with. I don't think that people, uh, you know, maybe some people never think about it, but I think more and more we are thinking about it. So what I really try to do in the book is give people the tools to think about it in a productive way. You write that as a cornerstone of the digital frontier and the push to commodify life itself, the datification and marketization of our interactions, explorations, meanderings, and bow rhythms, our pocket computers offer a unique window into contemporary life. Now, I know you mentioned a few ways there, but how do smartphones and social media, what do you mean by commodifying life itself? And what's wrong with making money off life, selling it, buying it, repackaging lives and derivatives <laughs> or whatever the hell financialization does with commodities? So what's so? how do smartphones, social media commodify life itself? Well, this is one of the main tensions that I kind of explore in the book. And, and this, the tension is basically simply that when I use my phone, I'm using it to connect with other people for entertainment, to figure out where the hell I'm going because I'm lost. But when a company is designing the phone and the apps and, 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 and thinking about, you know, uh, these algorithms that they, that they use, their goal is not just to help me, right? Their goal is to create a profit and to keep me on my phone as long as possible so that I'm generating as much data as possible, which they shape into profiles and then sell to advertisers for many billions of dollars. So this is a real contradiction, right? In the ways that I use my phone and the ways that companies use our phones. And so when we think about, well, okay, isn't this kind of just a win-win? Well, I really would push back against that and say, actually, when our, you know, our meanderings and our, and our searches and our entertainment becomes ever more shaped around the profit motive, that is a less rich life, right? And it also allows these companies a lot more control into new spheres of our life that they've never had, which makes it harder and harder to sort of push back and say, no, I don't want every part of my life to be, you know, a market interaction. Some people disagree with that. This is, you know, this is a sort of value judgment that I'm making. Um, But other people say, hey, who cares? I have nothing to hide. These companies are giving me something that I like, and I don't care. You know, so we're not always going to agree about this. But me, I really push back and say, when everything starts to be about the profit motive, this is a this is a less rich life. And it really empowers these companies to create these kind of profiles of us and also, you know, governments uh, in ways that I, I think we need to be very cautious about where what is the end point of this? 
And you're right, claiming smartphones for people instead of for corporations would establish new norms and expectations of privacy vis-a-vis both the tech behemoths and the state, and more profoundly, would fortify the rapidly collapsing levy holding back the marketization of life itself. How would claiming smartphones for people instead of for corporations hold back the marketization of life itself? And do you mean by that nationalizing it? Because in your book, you talk about how in China, they have Alibaba, they have this pay system that everybody uses. And it started making me wonder if the nationalization of uh, social media and smartphones leads to more effective and efficient smartphones. Yeah, so I'm not an anti-tech person. I'm talking to you on a smartphone right now. You know, I have a laptop. I have, I watch Netflix. Like, I'm definitely connected in this world. I think the idea, when I say that we can make, take smartphones for ourselves and control them ourselves, is to say that we can use this technology for the things that we want, right? The idea is not just to throw our phones away and to be completely disconnected that's not it's neither desirable nor realistic the idea is to say all right these things that we rely on right like say google it's hard to imagine how we would do research how we would um you know connect with each other how we would find information without google it's become such a part of our everyday life uh that the 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 solution is not just to say all right don't use it Right. Instead, it's to say this is something that's important as turning on the lights and having clean water come out of the tap when I, you know, turn on the kitchen sink. It's becomes basically a utility. Right. And if we think about it as a utility, we can start to say, all right, you know, what if we could have, you know, social media networks or search engines that aren't just designed to sell our data? Right. What if they're just designed to be useful to us? And that seems at this point like a little bit of a utopian demand, but it's totally real, realizable if we actually, you know, formulate a, a demand to say this is what we want. You write the automobile smartphone analogy also offers a negative lesson that if we want to challenge the imperatives of Silicon Valley, we can't settle for bread and butter reforms. Efforts to rein in the auto companies stopped far short of industrial democracy, let alone a mandate for molding the automobile industry to the needs of society rather than molding society to the needs of the auto industry. But is that possible within capitalism? Will capitalism allow you to democratize the workplace? Well, you have to fight, Chuck. (laughs) You have to try to do it. I think that we really, you know, if we set our, our goals high, rather than just saying, okay, we want uh, these companies to offer slightly better privacy options or, you know, we want them to, uh, you know, pay their workers slightly more. Yes, we want both of those things. But if we make a big demand, which is to say we don't want our personal data to be collected and sold at all, right, without, you know, a much broader process of oversight, we can really actually start to rein this in. And and there is a precedent for this. I, I make an analogy in the book to talk about uh, pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies used to be allowed to just produce drugs and test them out in the wild to awful effects. Uh, but we realized that this was a terrible thing uh, and that we actually needed to rein them in and have co- some kind of centralized control over what drugs were being developed. And, you know, obviously there are some holes. We can think about the opioid crisis, but overall, right, this process works. And we can think about a similar type of developing a similar type of process for all of the personal data that is used in these algorithms that are 
basically, these tech companies can test them in the wild in the same way that drug companies used to be able to test drugs, uh, you know, out on the population. This, this shouldn't be allowed, right? We can say, no, we are not just, you know, inputs. We are humans. And the things that are associated with us, our personal data, should be protected, right? It's not data about crop yield uh, or electricity usage. It's data about my life. And so in that sense, it's different. And it's okay to say that it's different and that we want, you know, different regulations. That's part of taking control of, of this kind of machine that we carry with us. One last question for you, Nicole. We have been speaking with editor-at-large at Jacobin Magazine, Nicole Ashoff, author of the new book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. This is Nicole's eighth appearance here on This Is Hell, and you can find all of our interviews, including our first one with her uh, way back in 2015 when we discussed her book, The New Profits of Capital. You should listen to that interview because it really is, she's fantastic during it. Find out more about Nicole at NicoleAshoff.com. Follow Nicole on Twitter at Nicole. Nicole Ashoff. And as you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write deep economic divides and a growing sense of alienation and despair among ordinary citizens have bred political polarization and an upsurge of social unrest in the decade following the financial crisis organized around issues of police violence, gun law reform, women's rights, climate change, a living wage and health care reform has picked up steam as new social movements have emerged. In 2016, we witnessed an unprecedented display of shifting political sentiments, culminating in the election of Donald Trump, a candidate far beyond the pale relative to the political consensus that has reigned since the late 1980s. If not for smartphones, would we have had a President Trump? Did smartphone society usher in the Trump (laughs) presidency? And if so, how? Can we just blame smartphones for Trump? Oh, if only it were that easy. No, I definitely don't think that's the case. Uh, And when we think about, you know, a lot of the conversations that we're having today about elections and and political divides and 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 trust in, in, in established political parties, we see a lot of people trying to chalk it up to, oh, well, people are just being manipulated uh, by fake news or our politics are algorithmically generated. This is bullshit. I think we definitely have, you know, this, uh, the certain bad actors are trying to use social media and we, we have these, uh, you know, we're, we're penned in and these apps and, and, we, and algorithms are definitely trying to feed us what we think we want to see. But we have to put that into a much bigger context, right? People are angry at the ways that society has evolved over the past 30 years, particularly since the financial crisis. People were really hurt by that crisis and really lost a lot of faith in their elected officials. This is what spurred the election of Donald Trump, right? And we're seeing it expressed and sometimes shaped through our smartphone politics. Uh, But we cannot just take this very easy kind of explanation and say, Yep, Trump is a result of, you know, fake news and, and algorithms. I think that that's not the right answer. Nicole, it is always a pleasure hearing your voice. It's great to have you back on the show. I always enjoy our conversations. Everybody should make sure to check out your book, The Smartphone Society, and go listen to all our interviews that we have done with Nicole at thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being back on the show, and you know we're going to keep annoying you for the rest of your life. Thanks, Chuck. It was really my pleasure to be on and talk about the book. All right. Take care. Great to hear from your voice. 
money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money so you do the math this is hell this week's question from hell is alex did you do another rewrite or do you want me to read it as you said it earlier um, I cleaned it up uh, slightly. All right. Still could use some help from Ronaldo. Uh, this week's question from Hell is, what's the best thing you can do for the world on your smartphone? What is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Sorry. Jeez. Uh, okay. <laughs> you can leave your answers to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with the our favorite answer wins the book we just discussed, Nicole's The Smartphone Society. Alex, do you have any answers? To this oh, yeah. Question? We got a bunch already. Right. Uh, what is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Mike M says, swipe left. <laughs> Marty P says, clean it with disinfectant wipes. <laughs> Zach N says, make it stupid. Jeffy D says, sneeze on it and wipe it on the president's face. <laughs> <laughs> Paolo S Disgusting. says, Paolo S says, eat it. What is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Maya M says, hack the credit card companies and delete everyone's debt. Stephen S says, praise the market god in every message board. <laughs> Jeremy T says, throw it, in an, throw it in an effing river. Walter M says, interfere with the presidential election. <laughs> what is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Scott S says, seize the memes of production. Uh, memes. That's so cute. Jack W says, being continually proven right with regard to God's favorite radio station. Or radio program, sorry. Eric T says, spread coronavirus. Uh, Max I says, this. Michael LP says, yeet. Which I do not understand. Yeah. Andrew P says, turn it off. Clay G says, chuck, chuck it, LOL. <laughs> and finally, what is the best thing you can do for the world with your smartphone? Mitchell C says, spread union talking points on Grinder." <laughs> God. Uh, so Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, Jacobin's Branco Marchatich will be on to talk about his book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against... Joe Biden. Oh, great. <laughs> Good. Tune into tomorrow. By the way, uh, we should dig up the, I think it's a 2007 interview with Doug Henwood, where uh, I think the name of the article at Harper's was Anybody But Hillary. And then the 2011 or 2012 interview we did with him or Lives of Featherstone about why we shouldn't vote for Hillary. And see, we should just find all of our interviews that we've done about why you shouldn't vote for John Kerry, why you shouldn't vote for Hillary, why you shouldn't vote for Al Gore. Oh, there's a great one from Christopher Hitchens about how horrible Al Gore is. Maybe we should share all those in the real near future. Oh, okay. Now we're in election season. A history of uh, DNC train wrecks. Yeah. But there's, also a, there's also a really good Coburn interview on Biden. I think we talked... Uh, do you remember that, having uh, Coburn on to talk about Biden? Yeah, that does sound familiar. Alex? Or was it Andrew? I think it was Andrew. I can't remember. Whatever. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing today. Thanks to Nicole Ashoff for being our guest. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.